Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Welcome to episode eight of the Untethered Podcast. This is your host, Hallie Balkin, here today answering questions that I have fielded from some of the Facebook groups, the Tongue Tie Adult Support Group, the SLP and Tongue Tie Group, the Tongue Tie Kids Group. You know, there's a lot of really awesome Facebook groups out there. And so what I want to do with today's episode is answer some of your questions. Now, if you've asked questions that you do not receive an answer to on today's podcast, it's because one, I either ran out of time or two, because we're really going to dive deeper into some of these questions on an upcoming interview. And I already, I may already know that with some of the guests that I have planned for upcoming episodes. So bear with me. Please don't feel like I am intentionally leaving you out or not answering your question, um, but we'll see how many we can get through today. And, and before we jump into that, I would like to make a plea for, I say, for the love of all things tongue tie, please stop posting pictures. And this, I'm not, this is not just for parents. This is for professionals too, but please stop posting a picture, a standalone picture in a Facebook group and asking somebody to diagnose your tongue tie or your child's tongue tie. It's not only unethical for a provider to do that, but it actually can become a legal issue. So what I want people to understand is that we don't diagnose just by looking under the tongue. That is part of a comprehensive functional evaluation. Yes, we're going to look under the tongue if you come and see us, for those of us who do myofunctional um, evaluations and assessments. But we're looking at a picture of what is the, you know, the medical history, what is the feeding history, speech history, what you know, what um, currently is going on, what are the current symptoms, and this goes from anyone who, you know, infant all the way up through adulthood. We go back, and we, at least I do, and I do a very comprehensive intake because I can tell you, you know, if you had a hard time nursing as an infant, that's going to be just as important now if you're an adult with a tongue tie, you know, as looking under the tongue and seeing if there's some tight restrictive tissue under there. Um, So, I'm just putting that plea out there because I see people diagnosing other people's photos and I think it's just a dangerous place to be in right now um, because there's much more beyond what we see in a picture, beyond what we see when we look under the tongue that needs to be considered in determining if you're going to proceed with any further steps you know, to improve, whether it's your sleep, apnea, jaw issues, you know, TMJ, um, TMD or whatever else may be going on as an adult, and then, you know, feeding issues, speech issues as a child or a teen, and so on and so forth. So a little side note, that doesn't stop with little ones. Actually, I do see a lot of adults who have persistent issues, um, even with textures and foods that they eat or don't eat as adults. So um, I want to make that disclaimer too. But anyways, let's jump into some of the Q&A, because that's the more, that's the more fun part of this. And full disclaimer, I have not prepped my responses to these questions. Basically, I'm going to go through your questions. I'm going to read them. 
And this is how I would answer them if you were sitting in front of me asking these questions during an evaluation. Of course, I can only answer as much as you give me in the question, and I'm not gonna answer it as though we're doing an eval. These questions will be more generalized responses. Um, and if you know you hear your question answered and you have further questions, let me know. We can always dive deeper into them on, on future episodes. But as a disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast shares, this is not intended to replace an assessment or treatment. This is just you know, to give you some information, to bring more information to the masses and to help guide you so that you feel confident going into your evaluation or your phrenectomy or whatever the case may be, your, you know, expansion. Again, I'm not a dentist, so I don't move teeth for a living. So I can't really talk too much about that. I'll save those kinds of questions for when I do have those people on the podcast, um, my dentists, my orthos and so on. But anyways, you know, let's jump in, but just keep in mind, you know, I'm not, this is not medical advice that you should take as an answer to your problem. You should just take it as a learning opportunity, add some more information to, you know, what you're seeking out there and take it with you to the provider that you're working with and just feel like you're a little bit more empowered because you have more information. But again, this is not me giving you treatment advice. Um, So let's jump in. The first question uh, in the tongue-tied adult support group was from Carrie Lynn, and she asked, you know, stitches versus no stitches. All right, that is a loaded question, Carrie Lynn. (laughs) Um, I don't make that determination, so I can't really tell you full on out, and I will definitely have some of my release providers speak to that on upcoming uh, recordings. However, I did um, ask you if there were any questions, you know, if you had any specific questions related to the stitches, like if it was for adults versus kids, based on the tool use, etc. So let me know um, if you hear this podcast, because I would love to answer those questions for you on an upcoming podcast. Um, I can tell you personally, when I had my tongue tie release, that I did not have stitches. And I almost wish that I had now that I know how my body heals and because I didn't really have anybody to do my active wound care afterwards. And you know, go back to the podcast with um, Autumn Henning because she speaks about, you know, we talked about active wound care versus pre and post-op exercises. They're two different things. And, you know, usually don't, you don't do the active wound care if you have sutures, the stitches. So it's definitely a conversation to have with your release provider. And if they're recommending one versus the other, you can ask them why or ask them, you know, in what situation might you do one versus the other so that you can help together come to what the best solution would be for you. For me personally, with the children that I work with, you know, one of my release providers does like to put sutures in for like the preschool age kiddos. And that's because compliance in the after um, wound care, AWC, active wound care, sorry, after the fact, as well as the you know, the stretches you have to do, they, they just don't want you in their mouth. And so in order to help it re, you know, keep it from reattaching, I know that he likes to play sutures. However, it's not a replacement for exercises. You still have to do exercises. So there still needs to be some level of compliance there. But, you know, that's been a little bit of my experience from what I'm seeing. I can't recommend one way or the other. Kezia, and I hope I'm saying your name right, says, if you don't have any noticeable symptoms, should you still consider getting your tongue tie revised? My question for you, Kezia, would be, well, if you don't have any noticeable symptoms and you've gone through like the checklists, what brought you to the the question as to whether or not you should have a tongue tie release? You know, was it that you had somebody who said, hey, you have a tongue tie, Um, but you're not noticing a functional impact and they assessed you and told you you have no functional impact. You know, in that case, if someone does not have any symptoms and does not have functional impact, 
then no, a procedure is not generally warranted. However, I would have a conversation with whoever did your evaluation and your release provider because they may see some symptoms that you're not aware of. And so I would ask them to discuss that further with you so you can figure out in your case, you know, what's going on, are there symptoms and, you know, but yes, in general, if there, if there's no symptoms, then there's no reason necessarily to consider a procedure. Again, it's out of my scope to decide if someone gets a procedure or doesn't get a procedure. I can just say, hey, this is what I'm seeing and refer you on. I'm just giving you some advice so you know what questions to ask your release provider. Um, So I hope that helps. Mara uh, asked, what are the most important myo exercises to do a month or a few months prior to a release? I love that you're asking this question um, and there's more to this. We'll go to the second half of your question next um, because I like that the information is getting out there that you need to do pre-release exercises. So yes, there needs to be pre-op therapy in place before you go in for your tongue tie release. And anybody who does not have you doing that is really doing a major disservice to you because most people are not prepared to let's say, to do the exercises afterwards properly, or, you know, you're also not feeling the difference in doing them before and after if you haven't done them before. But also I work with a lot of my clients to like relax the facial muscles, relax the upper body, to learn how to breathe through their belly instead of through their clavicle, you know, through their chest. And, you know, so if you're not breathing from a deeper place, you know, diaphragmatic breathing is what I call it, but really belly breathing, you know, inflating that balloon and letting it deflate um, from your belly, then you're going to have a lot more work to do after the release. So there is a lot to be said for pre-op therapy and exercises surrounding getting the tongue to the best of our ability, you know, working independently of the jaw, the face, the lips, um, but also breathing and just overall relaxation of the surrounding orofacial structures is, and you know, even your upper body, your shoulders, your neck, that's really important to pre-op. So, um, really great question. I know Mara, you said you don't want to go to a therapist and shell out tons of money just for them to tell you something that you could practically have figured out yourself. I will tell you that it is individualized. So if anybody is giving you, and do I have like a general list of exercises? Sure. But I don't give everybody every exercise and I don't give everybody the list and tell them like, Hey, you need to do these 20 exercises pre-op. That's not how it works. My therapy is very individualized. And so whoever you're going to for that myofunctional therapy should be doing several things. One, they should be evaluating you first. So there's a baseline Two, they should be giving you pre-op exercises based on what you, how you appear and what you need to work on prior to your release. And that's going to be different from one person to the next. So there's no cookie cutter pre-op, you know, handout that says, Hey, everyone getting a tongue tie release needs to do these five exercises first. Um, and Hey, once you can do this, you know, you're cleared to have your release. That's not a thing. So I want to kind of clear up that misconception because it should really be individualized to your particular needs. So feel good that the money that you're spending truly beneficial and helpful to you. And it's going to help maximize your outcome of that release because you're really going to be prepared for it. Uh, Generally, you know, and actually not generally, but I have people who range in sometimes needing two weeks of therapy pre-op and I have some people who need eight weeks of therapy pre-op. It really depends on your age, how involved your symptoms are, how involved all the muscles, you know, the muscles are surrounding the orofacial complex and supporting the orofacial complex and, 
you know, what your tongue is able to do at this moment in time when I first meet you and what it's not able to do. And really, we don't always know. I can't give everybody a timeline and say, hey, yeah, you need six to eight weeks of pre-op before we're going to say you're cleared for your tongue tie release. That's just not how we do things. We basically say, hey, this is your eval. Here are the results. Here's the treatment plan. And once we're getting closer to you being ready, we'll have that discussion so you can, you know, get on the phone and make an appointment with the release provider. And they'll know at that point that, you know, we'll give them the the go ahead to say, you know, you're we're good to go here. You do your thing as step two, um, you know, basically give them that green light as I think. Autumn had uh, referenced in an earlier podcast, episode four, she talked about that green light that her team has, green light, red light, like green light, go, red light, hold up, we're not ready. So really important to just understand it is not a cookie cutter thing. And whoever's working with you should be watching you and they should be tailoring their feedback to you based on what they're seeing you do so that they're truly helping you achieve whatever goals you've put in place prior to that release. Um, So I hope that helps really clarify things and again, make you feel good about the investment that you're making both in the myofunctional therapy, but also your health and your future, really. You had also asked Mara about DNA versus alpha appliances on fully widening the airway in adults um, and if I have knowledge on it. Yes, I do because I actually use a DNA myself, but again, I am not a dentist. This is not what I do. And you'll find that in the episode with, go back to the episode with Dr. Jennifer Tippograph, we talk about DNA versus the ALF or the ALF, whatever you want to call it, appliances and when they use those, why they use those. So go check that episode out and hopefully that will give you some good info there. But, you know, reach back out if you have questions and we can definitely get you some answers. Megan asks, how difficult is it to relearn to use your tongue after a release? Megan, that is a loaded question, girl. (laughs) Um, How difficult is it to relearn? Well, I I can't really answer that question because it depends on so many factors. How involved are you? What is your age? How many patterns do you have in compensatory patterns do you have in place that we need to like retrain, reteach? I have some adults that have that go through therapy in six sessions, 10 sessions, and they're they're really they're good to go. And I have others who are in for six months, eight months. I mean, it depends on so many factors and there's no textbook case per se where at least not with the patients that I see where everybody has the same symptoms in the same situation and the same protocol and the same goals. Um, you know, things, the ultimate end goal is the same, but like the, the steps to get you there sometimes look very different. And so I would say as an adult, because you asked this in the tongue tie adult support group, most adults are pretty in tune with their bodies, especially if you're now talking about getting a release and you're doing the pre-op. And so, you know, I find that adults cognitively over a child, for example, a young child, Adults understand what they're being asked to do, and because you better understand it, sometimes it's easier to achieve it. Not always. I mean, there are some people who have a lot of other things going on as far as, you know, temporomandibular disorders and things that just kind of get in the way of, I'd say, like an easy recovery. Not to say that all recoveries are easy or harder, you know, and qualify them, but my point is that it's not that it's difficult to relearn to how to use your tongue. It's just that you need to be on top of doing the exercises and truly following the treatment plan that you're given to maximize the best outcome and to make the quickest progress. So like if, for example, if they say do the exercises three times per day or six times per day, 
you need to follow that recommendation because that's going to make your healing and the relearning of the, the neuromuscular patterns, you know, for your tongue to figure out where it's supposed to exist in your mouth. It's just going to make it so much easier if you're a compliant patient and if you're really doing the exercise protocol, the homework that you're given between sessions, if you're really diligent about doing them. So I hope that helps a little bit because like I said, that's a super loaded question. All right, so going on to the SLP and tongue-tied group on Facebook, there was a question there about autism and what if the child has autism. We're actually going to talk about TOTS um, tethered oral tissues and um, orofacial myofunctional disorders, OMDs, and special populations in an upcoming episode. So stay tuned for that because that I think will be really awesome information, especially for those um, those of you with special needs or who have children with special needs because there's a misconception among some people out there that you can't treat this population, and that's absolutely not true. So I happen to think that they're really fun to work with, especially like my teens with autism because they're so honest and they just keep the sessions so interesting because they just basically tell me how it is. And it, you know, we both, well, I laugh because they call me out on my, you know, on things that I'm doing, which I just think it's hilarious. But yeah, when it's a young child with, you know, special needs and maybe sensory issues or, you know, things like that. Can we work with them? Can they have tongue tie releases? Can they succeed in the pre and post op and um, you know setting them up them up for success in the future and preventing further issues with myofunctional disorders? Yeah, one hundred percent. So um, you'll want to tune into an upcoming episode to learn more about that in particular. Another one, Deborah had asked. I think it was Deborah. I might be making this up. Um, but somebody said, you know, what about when a parent comes back to you and says, hey, the pediatrician told me there's no tongue tie? Really good question because it is a rampant issue. And what I'll tell you is that I love our pediatricians. I really do. I think that they're phenomenal people. Um, and I think that we obviously need them in our lives and they keep our kids healthy. And, you know, my one disclaimer here is that not everybody, not, and I'll say you've not even all speech pathologists specialize in tethered oral tissues. So what I hear a lot is, oh, the pediatrician or, oh, the ENT said they can stick their tongue out past their lips so they don't have a tongue tie. It doesn't need to be released. Well, as somebody who's not doing because they're a pediatrician and I, I have not met any pediatricians that do tongue tie releases yet, so I'm not saying they don't. That would be news to me. I've never, at least not in my area, met a pediatrician who does the releases. They tend to be either an oral surgeon or, you know, done with a dentist in a dental office or an ENT um, in a surgical center. So if you're not releasing them, I would really refer out for that. So I don't, I, and again, (laughs) you hear me like stuttering on this because I really don't feel that it's fair for somebody who is not trained in something to give a second opinion. That's like saying, hey, you know, my PT and the um, orthopedist said that I need a knee replacement. So I went to my, you know, general practice, you know, practitioner and asked him if he thinks I need a knee replacement. Why, you know, why would that be your your doctor's place, your general practice, practicing doctor, why would it be his place to 
tell you if you need your knee replacement or not. No, that's why you go to the orthopedist, you go to you know the orthopedic surgeon, the PT. If you're gonna get a second opinion, you're gonna go to another orthopedic surgeon, or you're gonna go, you know, you're gonna go to another specialist who specializes in working with knees. You're not gonna go back to your general practitioner and say, hey, what do you think about this? You know, should I do it or not? It's not really their place to make that call. Same thing goes for tongue ties. It's not really someone's place to make that call if they are not specialized in it. And that even goes among speech pathologists and RDHs. If they don't have that additional training in how to identify tongue ties and treat people who have tongue ties, then they really don't have you know, the knowledge base to make that call and to say, hey, yes, you have a tongue tie or no, you don't have a tongue tie or hey, yes, you should go to see the dentist or no, you shouldn't go to see the dentist. So I just, I want to put that out there because I want to make sure that people are really asking about credentials or checking with equal, you know, always get a second opinion, a third opinion if you want to. I am totally cool with that, but make sure the people that you're getting those opinions from have the right background and specialty trainings to make the call and give you a second or third opinion where you're actually comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges. Okay. So I, I hope that helps. Um, I think that, you know, when the person who asked about this in the SLP and tongue tie group, um, about, you know, when a pediatrician says there's no tongue tie, like what is our recourse? Like what's our next step? Go get a third opinion, but make sure this time you're also getting an opinion from somebody who, who either does tongue tie releases or who sees a lot of tongue ties, even if they're not doing the releases themselves, like a speech pathologist or, um, you know, another specialist. And I see speech pathologists because that's what I am. I'm, you know, certified in oral facial myology. I diagnose tongue ties because I'm, I'm trained in that. Um, and I do feeding therapy. But, you know, you have to make sure the person you're getting a second and third opinion from, like, I can't nail this one down hard enough. (laughs) It's got to be somebody who's got the qualifications to give you that second or that third opinion. Um, So just keep that in mind. Okay. So our next question was Marie asked or she said that she saw a kiddo who suspected had a tongue tie. And this is coming from a speech pathologist who asked this question. And the dentist said he did a modified phrenectomy, mentioning some other details and saying he couldn't really go further without causing more pain. And so the speech pathologist is saying, you know, it's been months and I don't really see much change. He still struggles with the sounds that he was struggling with. And um, they're on break from speech for the summer, but basically very smart kid. They've been able to correct some of the sounds, but one of the sounds is still really problematic for him. Um, one of those sounds being the R. And <laughs> I laugh, not because I think the situation is funny, but because this is the story of my life. I um, have become known as like the person to send all of the kids to who have been in speech for their entire life. They said, they all say, okay, well, you know, we kind of don't really know what to do for you anymore because you're a teen and you've been in speech since you were two and we still can't get those R's. So, hey, go see Hallie. <laughs> and it's funny, you guys, because I've come like a full 180. I always worked with like the little, little ones, like the infants and the toddlers. And I R was just not a sound I did because kids were not expected to have it yet at that age. And now it's become like the bane of my existence and not in a bad way, but I just have to laugh because I always, I used to say like, oh, I don't treat R. R is not a thing I treat. Um, and now it's basically one of the main sounds that people call me for, you know, S's and R's and the Z's and sh, ch, j, z, s, you know, all those, those letters and sounds um, and all the variations of R. And if you are a speech therapist or if you've been, had a kid in speech therapy or were in speech therapy yourself, you might know that R is basically like its own alphabet because 
you've got R in the beginning of words, but then you also have R's that change based on the vowel that comes before it. And sometimes you have R's next to a consonant and it just takes its own like shape. And yeah, so that's why for some people R is such a hard sound to achieve. And I know I'm not really answering Marie's question right now, um, but basically, I think, you know, she was kind of sharing an experience and saying, look, a modified phrenectomy was done. In my opinion, that means they did an incomplete release and maybe another release provider should take a look-see under the tongue and see if they think further release is needed or not. But based on the symptoms in this kid's situation, you know, where clearly he's having a hard time getting that R. What I personally find, and I'm not going to do a whole R course right here, but so this is a very brief, summarized, general statement take it for what it's worth. I find that a lot of my kiddos who have been released but still can't say their R's, one, they've got you know older patterns that we have to correct and if they've been doing it for a long time, it's just, it's harder to change those patterns. Um, can it be done? Absolutely. But sometimes, you know, we have to undo what's, kind of undo and unwind a little bit before we can really t- teach correct placement. Not all the time. Sometimes they go and they, they're able to just pop that tongue right into correct placement and then we just have to work at that and, um, you know, create new neuromuscular patterns um, and new memory, you know, for that movement and then habituate it so it becomes a habit and actually sticks and happens outside of just single words but actually happens in conversational speech. So what I'm finding with a lot of these tongues is that, you know, if the child is restricted, their tongue you know, and this is why you really need a trained eye looking at this, even a speech pathologist who really knows where the tongue should be to produce some of these sounds. You know, you have to, you know, some of the R's, I'm watching kids, they keep the tip of their tongue down, they hump the middle of the tongue up toward their palate, toward the top of their mouth, but the back of the tongue, which you can't really see because the middle is now up, is stuck down. They cannot move the back of their tongue. They cannot elevate it. They cannot raise it to make contact with their palate. And so what this is doing is it's distorting their R productions. They're not able to hit a accurate R. And that's where you get, you know, all these kids who sound like they're from a different state. <laughs> for I would say my, my New Yorker Boston R producing kids who live in Maryland who don't have an accent, but you know, they cannot get their R's. And it's not always that clear. Sometimes it's very hard to understand some of the kiddos that I work with. It doesn't just sound like an accent, but it sounds like very distorted speech that's actually very hard to understand. So, you know, what I want you to understand is that there is a physical restriction in some of these cases that is causing the tongue to stay down. They, they cannot raise it up no matter how hard they try or what compensatory strategies we give them or they try to use. You know, I want you guys to understand the human body is smart. And if we can find compensatory strategies to make something sound good or chew and swallow the proper way or not maybe the proper way, but in a compensatory way because we can't do it properly, the body's going to try and figure that out. And then that's going to become your new learned pattern. And, you know, so we have to work through some of those and we really need to know and know how to examine where the tongue is when you're producing these sounds. Um, And it sounds to me like based on this situation where, you know, he's been able to get some of the other sounds, it might not involve his tongue having to retract really far back and make contact, you know, with his upper palate and the back of the tongue. He's able been able to achieve some of those sounds. So maybe it was that the tongue was released enough to achieve some of those sounds, but it was not released enough to truly achieve R in in conversational speech. Um, And, you know, I know there's people who will probably get on me about making these claims and telling me that there is not a lot of research to support this and yada yada whatever 
And look, I am all about evidence-based practice and I think it's needed. And if you are listening to our podcast, you will know that I, you know, we're big on having our speakers share, you know, research that they have found to be impactful in their practice and we're linking to it in the show notes. But there's also something to be said for the fact that clinical evidence is considered, it's considered EBP, evidence-based practice. And I want parents to understand that too, um, because sometimes parents come into the group and they say, well, what research is there to support this? Or what research is there to support that? Well, I can tell you based on my personal practice and the number of kids that I've helped you know, swallow properly, get a correct oral rest posture, produce, you know, their speech the way they're supposed to produce it, not just compensatory strategies. I can tell you that based on clinical evidence, there is definitely an impact, maybe not on everybody, but there are people who are functionally impacted because of their tongue ties. And this is evident, in my opinion, based on how quickly they're able to produce a sound right after their tongue has been released or how quickly in some cases the tongue finds its way to the top of the mouth if the palate is wide enough and the tongue has been released. You know, there's there are situations where I am seeing incredible changes for kids or adults who have been in therapy for a very long time or have had symptoms for a very long time and they get a release and then all of a sudden some of these symptoms go away. Maybe not all of them and maybe like I said certain things have to be retaught um, in therapy, but Something to be said for the fact that clinical evidence is evidence-based practice. And, you know, some people will say, oh, it's the lowest level of evidence-based practice. That doesn't matter. It's still there. And in my opinion, you know, I don't want to take 12 kids and say, hey, you're not getting a tongue tie release, even though we've decided, you know, the team has decided that you might need one. And hey, these 12, you're going to get it. And we're going to compare the two of you for the next six years and see, you know, what happens if you get the release or you don't get the release and watch you struggle through feeding and speech issues and watch you, you know, maybe you overcome all your issues in however many months we're able to help you overcome those issues. You know, I just... I'm all for the research, but I'm also all for getting my my patients, my clients' results as fast as we can because this impacts kids and adults socially, educationally, and that has long-lasting implications. So I know there's people out there doing awesome research. I'm going to leave it to them. I enjoy bringing my clients in, my patients in, and treating them and getting them results faster, and that keeps me really busy, and I have really awesome you know, cases that, you know, pending my my clients allowing me to do this, I would love to share some so that people can hear more stories of success, um, you know, following a tongue tie release as compared to what they were experiencing prior to and then what they noticed immediately after and then in the months, you know, following and even a year or two post-release. So I think there's a lot to be said about sharing that kind of information because I think that would help a lot of people out there realize how needed this procedure is if you have a provider who's telling you that they recommend it. Um, Anyways, so I know I kind of went off on a little tangent there about EBP, but I wanted to put that out there because I think there's a major misconception that the only type of acceptable evidence-based practice is that that you read in a journal, a peer-reviewed journal. And while that evidence is awesome, I've also seen people take the same research paper and use it to their advantage to prove something or disprove something with this same set of research. So people will take things and make it work for them the way they want to. Keep that in mind as well. And so, you know, just be open-minded to what you're what you hear here and what we share with you because again, our goal is to help our patients in the best way that we can and to be practicing in really a 
patient-centered modality, if that makes sense. I think we're going to stop there for today, um, and we'll do another one of these in a couple weeks with answering some Q&As from the Tongue Tie Kids group. As always, if you guys have questions, feel free to submit them on the website at untetheredpodcast.com. We are going to provide a little pop-up that you know, says, what would Hallie do? (laughs) And you can use that as a means to uh, include your information or your questions and be as detailed as you want. Like you can send me a paragraph long question because the more details I have, the better I can help either answer your question or guide you to professionals who will be able to answer your question in your area. So I hope this was helpful. I look forward to more of these episodes so that we can get your questions answered and I hope you have a great day. Chat soon. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.